Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast that helps you preach with confidence from the Hebrew Bible. I'm Tim McNinch, a PhD candidate at Emory University and an amateur juggler. <laughs> and I'm, I'm Dr. Rachel Wren, an ordained Lutheran minister and assistant professor of biblical studies at Trinity Lutheran Seminary, and I cannot juggle. But thankfully, it's not up to me to juggle this week's text. You see what I did there? Tim is up this week to share his insights into the first reading for October 17th, 2021. Um, Okay, but now I'm I'm just reading what you sent me, Tim, for what you focused on. And it says here Hebrews 5, 1 through 10. That's actually like the the third reading, the epistle (laughs) reading. What do you got going on here? Yeah. Well, uh, yes, we are the Old Testament Lectionary Podcast, but part of the reason we do this podcast is so that there's more balance between sermons from both Testaments of the Christian canon. And the New Testament reading for this week, and, and for several weeks ahead, is in the book of Hebrews, which leans heavily on Old Testament references, allusions, and ideas. So I thought it'd be helpful to unpack some of that for preachers who might be taking up Hebrews over the next few weeks. Okay, that makes sense. I'll allow it. (laughs) All right. I'm much obliged to you. You're welcome. Uh, As a side note, uh, some of you out there may be tuning in, hoping to hear an episode from us on Isaiah 53, that famous song about the suffering servant who bears the sins of the people, a fascinating and often Christologically interpreted text. If you're thinking about preaching Isaiah 53, I'd recommend taking a listen to a recent episode of The Bible for Normal People from just a few weeks ago, which is another uh, great Bible podcast. There's no competitiveness here. Pete Enns, who's a wonderful Bible scholar with a funny, sarcastic wit, just did a long episode called Pete Ruins Isaiah. And the last 15 minutes or so is all about how to understand Isaiah 53 in its own 6th century BCE context. Oh, nice. So be sure to check that out if that's of interest to you. But over here at First Reading, we're taking an unusual turn to the second reading, or maybe third reading, the (laughs) New Testament epistle to fill you in on some of the Old Testament background that impacts its meaning. All right. Very cool. Well, let's have it. What do you got? Okay, so much of the book of Hebrews is like a sermon, really almost a philosophical treatise on the nature of Jesus, especially in his role as the ultimate eternal leader of God's people. This section of the book in chapter 5 highlights two facets of Jesus' identity and explores their juxtaposition. First, Jesus is a quote-unquote son of God. This is a royal title, and to bring out this resonance, the author quotes from Psalm 2, 7, You are my son, today I have begotten you. In context, this may have been part of a coronation ritual in which Judah's kings were declared to be basically adopted by God. As a son, the king goes about the family business of rulership on behalf of the parent, God. So this ritual invests the king with God's authority and marks them out as God's own appointed leader. The author of Hebrews brings this up to emphasize that in Jesus' role as ruler of God's kingdom, Jesus was chosen and appointed by God, not by people. Called into the family business. I like that. Yeah, yeah, that works. But then there's another, even more significant side to Jesus' leadership for the author of Hebrews. Jesus is also a high priest, one who made atonement for God's people by offering his own life as a priestly sacrifice. And to bring that aspect out, 
the author quotes a line from another psalm, Psalm 110.4, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. This reference to Melchizedek comes up twice in the selectionary reading, in verse 6 and verse 10, but it doesn't really get explained in any detail until Hebrews chapter 7, which that chapter is basically a long, intricate unpacking of this typological metaphor. Yeah, it's a really fascinating quotation of Psalm 110 because it's quoted almost as if it's something that everybody knows. You right, know, a priest, right. According to the line of Melchizedek, and we get there and we're like, wait, what, who? Melky who? Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. why don't you say a little bit about Melchizedek? Because it seems like there's a whole lot of background that the author of Hebrews is assuming that we know that we kind of don't. Yeah, yeah. So there is a, a like a brief little snippet of an episode in Genesis 14, verses 18 to 20, when uh, Abram rescued his nephew Lot from uh, captivity after he was abducted by some warlords. And Abram leads this successful military coalition against uh, invaders to the Canaanite highlands. And then we get to this point uh, in verse 18, uh, where afterwards Melchizedek, the king of a little city kingdom called Salem, which is traditionally identified probably correctly with Jerusalem, Jerusalem, uh, he comes out and blesses Abram on behalf of El Elyon, the, the Most High God, or the God of the Highlands, you might say. Abram responds to this blessing from Melchizedek, the king-slash-priest, by giving him a tenth of the spoils from the battle. And this is seen as a way of kind of prefiguring the tithes that were later given to Israel's priests. But also, the figure of Melchizedek was taken up in later Jewish literature, too. Uh, like in one of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which focuses quite a bit on Melchizedek. And there, his story is somewhat expanded. Uh, Melchizedek has this like miraculous birth narrative and becomes a kind of superhuman figure who doles out divine judgment. Mm. Melchizedek also shows up in rabbinic literature that reflects some of these same extra-biblical features. In any case, Melchizedek was known at the time of the author of Hebrews as a unique kingly priest who wielded divine power. Well, and that's a nice way to talk about Melchizedek because, you know, the, the Hebrew meaning of his name gets lost when we talk about it in English because mm -hmm. it sounds nothing like the Hebrew words, you know, which is like most Hebrew names. But that Hebrew name Melchizedek is that king of righteousness, and it could be referring to either God or the king themselves, which would make a whole lot of sense in pulling that figure into the Jesus tradition and wanting Jesus to be linked to this king of righteousness, both in terms of these biblical passages that surround him, but also from these other cultural traditions too, right? Exactly, exactly, yeah. Cool. So so what do preachers need to keep in mind if they want to work with this text in their sermon? Hmm, yeah. Well, I think it's important to remember that if you're preaching on this text, you're preaching a sermon on a sermon, <laughs> <laughs> basically. In other words, this text right. is built around quotations and interpretations from other passages that come from the Hebrew Bible. So your own sermon needs to interpret both the Old Testament texts and this author's interpretations of them. Mm. So there's kind of like a, an inception factor here, right? Like, <laughs> but instead of a dream within a dream, you've got a sermon within a sermon because of Bible within the Bible. 
<laughs> Nicely done. So um, concerning the Psalms that the author quotes in this reading, it's worth noting that this author is presenting a typological interpretation of the Psalms, not a historical mm. reading. In historical context, both Psalms 2 and 10 are royal psalms. They're meant to extol the actual kings of the Judahite monarchy. Mm-hmm. Hebrews reads them in a new way and interprets them as typologies of Jesus, who rules like a king, but whose chief office in this book is that of a high priest. Mm-hmm. At the same time, it's also important to note that historically, there never was an actual priestly order of Melchizedek. Yeah. That's not an actual thing. It's not a group to which Jesus belonged. It's a typological concept that the author of Hebrews is borrowing from Psalm 110 and recycling here in order to distinguish Jesus' kind of high priesthood from the Jewish high priesthood that operated in the author's own day. Priests mm-hmm. who were traditionally descendants of Aaron and Zadok, but who were also appointed to their office during Roman times by corrupt politicians. Yeah, I think that's an important point to highlight too, because these are supposed to be lifetime appointments. Mm -hmm. Like once you become high priest, you're supposed to be high priest until you die. And that got totally consumed by Roman governors who said, no, 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 we're going to make this a yearly appointment and we're going to be the ones to divvy it out. Like that's a huge change. Yeah, exactly. And you can see even in the New Testament, you can see traces of that um, where certain aspects of the Jesus story are sort of dated by who happened to be high priest at that particular year or moment, right? Yeah. Yeah. And um, all of this is probably a reason why Melchizedek was so revered in the Qumran community, the people that created the Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm. They were a separatist sect who considered the whole Jerusalem-based priesthood in total to be compromised (laughs) and corrupted by their complicity with Rome. Mm. And so for them, Melchizedek represented a kind of pure, untouched priesthood, right? Mm. That may have been similar to what the author of Hebrews felt and tried to say about Jesus. In, in other words, just like Melchizedek was a priest, but was different, you know, not <laughs> a descendant of Abraham, Aaron, or Zadok, so too Jesus is a priest, but he's also different, also not a descendant of Aaron's priestly line, and not a part of that corrupt political system. And, you know, he also has a different kind of sacrificial system. His <laughs> self-sacrifice works one time forever instead of being offered year after year. Yeah, that's really nice. That it just throws me back to when we lived in Egypt. And um, the the phrase that we always said was, it's the same, but different. Like yeah, you yeah. got an advertisement for an air-conditioned van and you get to the van and they roll down the windows and they say, this is air conditioning. It's the same, but different. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So so Hebrews is, is drawing this sort of... Same but different connection to Jesus and Melchizedek, and by doing that, drawing a contrast between corruption of Roman political puppet priests. That's kind of what you're saying here. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, I think that's a big part of it. Okay, so break a couple things down for us. You mentioned type and typological interpretation a few times there. Can you define what you mean by those things? Yeah, yeah. Typology is a way of understanding that the author of Hebrews is borrowing from Greek philosophy. As I understand Mm -hmm. it, at least, typology is a bit stronger than symbolism. Symbols have their own meaning, but they also point to something else. Like like if I say this ring is a symbol of my marriage, it's still a ring. You know, it's a hunk of gold alloy that I wear on my finger, Hmm. but it can also be compared metaphorically to my marriage. It's precious, it lasts a lifetime. 
Types, on the other hand, are more like, say, uh, the architectural drawings for a building or a model home in a new subdivision. They're mm -hmm. not their own thing, but only exist to point to the reality that they represent. And sometimes mm -hmm. we use the word prototype, uh, which kind of captures that in colloquial mm -hmm. English a little better instead of just the word type. And, and really, I think that's how Hebrews is reading Melchizedek. He's a prototype of Jesus. Mm -hmm. His whole reason for showing up in the Abram story and in the psalm is to be a sort of mock-up for what Jesus ends up being in reality. Mm. Now, I don't think we're necessarily obligated to join the author of Hebrews in that assessment of Melchizedek as only sort of a prefiguring of Jesus. Uh, that typological lens is a way of reading that would have made a lot of sense in the Hellenistic culture of the Roman world. But it's definitely not the only way to interpret Jesus and Melchizedek. So personally, I would, I would walk it back a little bit towards symbolism and let mm -hmm. a sermon enter into conversation with Hebrews about how we might compare Jesus to Melchizedek, even though Melchizedek has his own meaning in the context of Genesis 14. Yeah, no, there really are a lot of ways that preachers could approach this. But I, I like the way that you framed it as entering into a conversation with the author of Hebrews. That's nice. Is there anything else that sort of sticks out to you in this passage? Yeah, well, whenever we're dealing with texts that compare Jesus to Jewish institutions from antiquity, it's always super important to remember that texts like this one from Hebrews are often interpreted by Christians in overtly anti-Jewish and supersessionist mm. ways. You know, with the, with the idea that when Jesus came, the old Jewish priesthood became obsolete, Jewishness became obsolete, and Christians yeah. replaced the Jews as God's chosen people. Yeah. Hebrews uh, is particularly tough in this respect. Yeah. Some of that supersessionist ideology really does seem to be there in the text. But that's not the only way that we can read it. Instead of replacing Jewish people and Jewish religious and social institutions, the author of Hebrews could be read as making a case that Jesus is the fulfillment of them. Like, like their mm. best, most idealized representation. Instead of replacing the Jews, Jesus is the best Jew ever, right? <laughs> <laughs> so that's a more positive spin on the rhetoric in Hebrews. Though I will say that even reading this way is risky, because in elevating Jesus' unique fulfillment of Jewishness, it can downplay or dismiss the ongoing significance of our Jewish neighbors throughout history and in our own communities today. And we would encourage you, dear preachers, not to do that, least of all from the pulpit. Yeah, yeah. And we do it so naturally, too. I just was reading an article that was comparing the Old Testament and the New Testament to a TV show with its first season and second season. And it was talking about how much like God saved the best for last, i.e. <laughs> the New Testament, wow. so did this series in the second season. And it was just like, oh, wow. Really, we're going to stand by that statement. I mean, but it's so, it's just almost natural to us, and it's such a fraught endeavor. So now that we've laid that out, what do you recommend for kind of tiptoeing around these supersessionist pitfalls? Should preachers just not preach on Hebrews? Well, that, that is a tempting route. Um, but like <laughs> you said last week about Amos, right, avoiding tough texts only reinforces their problematic interpretations. So, Don't uh, quote me to me, Tim. <laughs> yes, you should learn from this, Rachel. She, <laughs> she's got some good things to say. Uh, so yes, there are other readings to choose from this week, and might I suggest the first readings from Isaiah or Job or the Psalm. But uh, don't just blow off Hebrews altogether. Mm. Uh, if it does get read in the service, 
give it some context. And if you do preach it, I'd recommend really addressing the anti-Judaism directly. You know, like, this is how the text is often interpreted, et cetera, et cetera. But that's mm. not how we think about and treat our Jewish neighbors. Mm. And then give an interpretation that celebrates the Jewishness of Jesus and of his people. Mm. You know, if, if you happen to be uh, the kind of preacher who's, who's a storyteller and like to include historical anecdotes in your sermons, draw examples from history of Jewish people who really model faithfulness to God. Wow. I mean, there's so much going on in this passage, and you've, you've brought up a lot of literary features and preaching pitfalls. Do you have an angle that you might sort of point people to if you were going to preach this text? Yeah. I mean, this is, this is how I would get into it. Um, as I said, I think any sermon handling this text needs to acknowledge and, and really condemn the anti-Jewish history of interpretation. Mm-hmm. And just as well, any sermon on this text will need to take a bit of time to explain who Melchizedek was in biblical context. Hebrews, like you said, kind of assumes this background knowledge, but I don't think it's safe to assume that our congregations will already know all about Melchizedek. Um, (laughs) But at the heart of this text, and what I would keep as the heart of a sermon, is its theological reflection on Jesus's relationship to God. Jesus didn't become Messiah by some sort of personal ambition or by a political campaign or through an elite pedigree or by finagling corrupt political connections, right? Jesus's elevation to his priestly role on our behalf was, um, according to Hebrews, God's own initiative. Jesus was appointed just as Melchizedek was a priestly king outside of the usual Israelite systems. And God made Jesus fit for office, so to speak, not with the offer of a lucrative contract, but through the experience of deep suffering, as verses 7 through 10 explain. Jesus didn't have anything to gain in his high office as our high priest, but instead lost much. Hmm. And um, as far as like where you would take a sermon like this into sort of application, um, a lot of preachers are used to sermons that always have a strong prescriptive edge, you know, like here's how you should live now. But <laughs> I would say in this case, since this is primarily a theologically reflective text, I would recommend um, angling towards a response of gratitude and worship and sort of working mm-hmm. that into the response to this text um, rather mm-hmm. than trying to like shape this toward a particular moral lesson or behavioral prescription, if that makes sense. I think so. I mean, it's almost a sermon that, you know, if, you, if you're focusing on the relationship between Jesus and God, it's almost a ser- sermon that then lends itself to thinking uh, reflection on relationship between parishioner or church and Jesus. You know, what does it mean to have Jesus as high priest? And, you know, if you're, if you're really in in a bind for something to offer folks that's practical. I don't know. I don't think you have to um, by any means. But if you wanted one, just to invite people to pray to Jesus as high priest um, and see what that does to their prayer life this week, that could be an interesting sort of endeavor um, coming out of this. Yeah, that's really good. I like it. Well, way to take on one of those tough texts and, and really wrestle it. So great, great work there, Tim. Thank you. 
We hope, folks, you enjoyed this little wrestling match as well. Um, if you did and you preach on Hebrews, let us know. Send us a little message and let us know how it went. You can check us out on Facebook where we drop our weekly episodes or find a nice little stash of back episodes at firstreadingpodcast.com, especially now that we are in our second run through the lectionary cycle. If you're not finding the text you were hoping to preach on, go to firstreadingpodcast.com. We might have an archived episode on it. Send us some feedback. Give us a rating. We'd love to hear what's working and how we might be better. Special thanks to Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University for a grant that's helping us do what we do here. Thanks also to Tim for some great insights this week. And thanks to all of you who are listening. Until next time, I'm Dr. Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. We appreciate you all so much. Happy preaching.